from the magnificent Midwest, this is the Suzanne Benker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. This program is brought to you in part by Let's Get Real, where forensic accountant Tiffany Couch uses her financial skills to shine the light on the real issues we all face every day. If you would like to make decisions based on facts rather than on rhetoric and cultural pressure, go to letsgetreallife.com, a place where you can find tools to improve your communication skills and to increase your connection to humanity. That's letsgetreallife.com. Today on the show, we're going to talk with Warren Farrell about the myth of male power and other uncomfortable truths about women and men. But first, a few quick announcements. I am now offering a free signed copy of the Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage for everyone who signs up at the $20 Patreon level. So if you haven't become a Patreon supporter yet, now is definitely the time you're going to want to do that. Just go to thesuzannebankershow.com and click on the Become a Patron button. There are actually several tiers that you can join. But if you happen to choose the $20 level, that's when you get the free signed copy. So once you do that, my lovely assistant Kelsey will get with you and um, find out what your mailing address is. Finally, if you've been on the fence about whether or not to seek help for your marriage or relationship, why not sign up for your free 30 minute call with me to see if I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com. The button to sign up is right at the top. Dr. Warren Farrell is a political scientist, activist, and author of seven books on men's and women's issues. He was chosen by the Financial Times of London as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders, and his books have been published in more than 50 countries. Warren's most recent book, The Boy Crisis, was published with John Gray, who we had on this program, actually, several weeks ago, and was a finalist for the Indie Book Publishing Award. His other books include the New York Times bestseller, Why Men Are the Way They Are, and the international bestseller, The Myth of Male Power. Some of Warren's other books include Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say and Why Men Earn More. When he's not touring the country discussing the problems facing our boys and men, Warren runs couples workshops where he specializes in helping people receive criticism from their partner without becoming defensive. A highlight of Warren's work is that he offers a very different view of men and marriage than the one the culture tells and is tireless in his efforts to convey the importance of fathers. Welcome to the show, Warren. I'm really happy to be with you again, Suzanne. It's so nice to see you. It's We need to um, sort of tell people how we know each other. I think that would be helpful to know. I can't even honestly remember, Warren, how we uh, how we initially met. Do you? I, I'm afraid that I'm in the same ballpark that you were in, not remembering. Yeah, I don't remember, but we did. And he and I definitely um, are similar in terms of what we write about and what our interests are, which is men and women, male, female relations. Um, he does couples workshops. We're going to get to that later. And of course, um, he's a great author of many books. And I think it just came to me now that I'm talking about it. Um, the The first book I read was in re- doing research for my own books. And I can't remember how many books ago that was for me, but it was the myth of male power, which we're going to focus on today. One of the things we're going to focus on. And I was just extremely impressed. And somehow, shortly thereafter, I think we met. And anyway, I don't know how, but I have been to Warren's house for dinner. He was nice enough to have my a former publicist of mine and I had a dinner one time and that was lovely. So he has a great, a great home, which I think you do some of your counseling in, don't you? 
Yes, um, when I when I do counseling uh, in in pri privately, um, I do it in in the office that actually that you're looking at now. Um, Got it. Got it. Well, it's a really really neat house in Mill Valley, California, and um, and then I think we had dinner also with my husband, right, and your wife. We did. Yeah. Last time we last time we were there. Nearby Mill Valley Restaurant. Yeah. Awesome. So anyway, it's really lovely to see you again. Um, and what I'm going to do is start off by really honing in on that book, The Myth of Male Power, because I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and actually maybe before we do that, why don't you quickly tell your, your background prior to The Myth of Male Power as far as um, the National Organization of Women and what you were doing in the 1970s and all that stuff. Yes, um, I was teaching at Rutgers University and was doing my doctoral dissertation. And I was doing my doctoral, doctoral dissertation in political science. And while I was teaching, the women's movement surfaced, and I got I was really um, passionate about it. And um, and the students in my class at Rutgers said, you know, uh, you ought to do your dissertation on uh, the women's movement. So um, I persuaded my dissertation committee. Uh, they they all said, no, Warren, don't waste your time on that. It's only a, a fad. It will be gone by the time you finish your dissertation, uh, which pro probably meant they thought that it took me a long time to write. Um, but the, um, <laughs> so I, um, I persuaded them that it was not a fad, that there was an evolutionary shift that was happening and, um, and that women and men were both going to be wanting more flexible roles in the future than they had in the past. And some people would want their traditional roles and some people would want different roles, but there would be more freedom uh, than there was in the past. And they went, all right, because just at that point in time, I was also appointed to be assistant to the president of NYU, so they were a little bit less uh, prone to argue with me. Um, and so they let me do my dissertation in that in that area. And um, and so um, and that got me to join uh, now to, to to check out um, you know what I agreed with and disagreed with. And and so I then um, at one point now was planning to debating whether it should kick out its male members um, and just have it be a national organization of women as opposed to a national organization for women. And they decided that they would ask me to um, jo start um, men's awareness groups um, at the same time that the women were having their awareness sessions um, so that the men wouldn't dominate or interfere with the women talking to themselves one on, you know, um, without being interfered with by men. And so I did, and that worked really well. And then they asked me to be on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. And that led me to speaking around the world on women's issues. And I suppose uh, being the leading male feminist in the world for uh, a number of years until uh, the mid seventies when Divorces increased, and I start. I spotted uh, this uh, uh, this early research that was showing that children who um, grew up um, in divorced families where their father was minimally involved or not involved at all, uh, that these children did significantly worse. This was both boys and girls, but especially it was having a huge negative impact on boys. And so I brought this up um, to the uh, board, uh, and there was sort of like. Um, a response, and the response was, you know, uh, Warren, uh, we're getting a lot of a lot of mail from now members saying, um, I hope this equality stuff does not mean that you um, now people are going to are going to be um, in in favor of women and men both having equal rights to be able to um, parent the children after divorce because we as mothers know what's best for the children, and we should have the um, you know the right to parent them um, after a, a divorce um, in in the way that we want. And certainly, if the men are good men and good fathers, we'll 
incorporate them. And if not, or if we meet somebody that we want to be married to and want to start a better life and not and not live with our mistakes in the past, we want to be free to do that. Um, and so I said, well, I would totally agree with women's freedom to be able to 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 have children, to not have children. And uh, but once you make a free decision to do something that requires a commitment, like if I make a free decision to have a job, I make a free decision to give up certain um, privileges, like not, you know, like spending time at home and sleeping all day um, in exchange for the that pay that I'm getting to do the job. And when a woman makes a, a free decision to have a child or not have a child, her primary uh, commitment is that with that freedom goes the responsibility to make sure the life is as optimal for the child as possible, girl or boy. Um, and so we're beginning to see here some um, very powerful evidence um, of children um, that don't have father involvement after divorce or that grow up in um, single mom homes. They just aren't doing as well as the um, as children in um, who are doing uh, who are growing up in uh, with both mother and father. Yeah. And I'm going to pause you right there because that's the that's sort of the basis of the boy crisis. And we're going to get to that in a minute, I think. Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we'll get to that in a second. But I, I think it's important to note here. It's interesting because for those people who don't know of you, and I know a lot of people listening do, because I've actually had people say, you have to have Warren Farrell on. And here you are. So so some people have heard of you. But for those who haven't, I think to me, what makes you so fascinating is that you did start out on feminist side. And I know you wouldn't say that you're no longer on their side, I don't think. But I, what interests me is that you have this responsibility piece that is a component of what your whole, you know, MO is mm-hmm. that just isn't there with that group. And I believe that you realized that and learned that the hard way, and you're still learning it sometimes, that you really aren't on the same page as that group as it stands certainly today, but even in recent history. Would you disagree with that? I would totally agree with that. And I guess the way I would put it is, I thought my my uh, illusion, maybe delusion <laughs> at, the, at the beginning of the feminist movement was that, you know, we were all in favor of empowering women, but we were but Betty Friedan wrote a book called The Second Stage, which she's not very well known for, but it was an important book and it grew out of a number of dialogues. Um, I'm sure Betty had this on her own, but we, she and I had a number of dialogues on you know, the fact that there needed to be, this was the, that the primary goal here was that both sexes should be free from the rigid roles of the past for more flexible roles for the future, if that was what they desired. And so, and that the women's movement was not going to go very far, uh, I mean, super far in a positive way for women, if there was, if it was just women's liberation that we were focused on, there needs to be freedom for men as well. And so, and that was what she expressed in the second stage. And that's what I have been sort of uh, speaking about all my life. And Gloria Steinem used to say, what the world needs is more uh, women at work and more men at home. And basically I feel that um, I'm less concerned with there being more women at work and more men at home than I am for people to feel that there's the freedom to be, um, if you're a woman working full-time, being full-time with the children, doing some combination of both, and there's a freedom for men to be uh, full-time working, full-time with the children to do some combination of both. I want both sexes to have equal freedoms. And what we've focused on for the last, what we've, what the fundamental mistake of the feminist movement has been that we've gone from like Helen Reddy's song, I am woman, I am strong, 
to um, I am women, I am woman, I've been wronged. Mm, and very good. When, you, yeah. when you focus on female victim power, you are undermining respect for women. I want women to feel respected and be respected and respect themselves. And I want women to be behaving in a way, women and men to be behaving in a way that their children learn how to uh, respect the other gender re and respect themselves. And what the women's movement has been doing in the last um, 10 to 15 years in particular has been focusing on honing victim power as a fine art. And that is exactly the opposite of everything I stood for as a feminist. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. And it's, I've always said that they can't have it both ways. Either you empower women or you tell them on the, or you insist that they are victims, but you can't have both. Yes, you cannot yes. be empowered if you're a victim. It's just yes. like, it's not possible. Exactly. It's, and, and, and you lose respect for people yeah. who always focus on victims. So here, I'll give you a really perfect example of this before. And this is um, before I wrote The Myth of Male Power. Um, there, I used to debate on some, a show called The David Susskind Show. There was, uh, there were a lot, he would always invite sort of people that uh, everyone thought were male chauvinists and then people like myself to sort of debate them. And so, uh, and the male chauvinists would be saying, well, I'll tell you when women go to work, uh, they're gonna complain about things that we, uh, and it won't be, you won't be able to, guys, you're, we're always joking with each other. We're always putting each other down. And I would say that, you know, the commerce of masculinity is the trading of wood-covered wood put-downs. And nobody understood why men do this wood-covered put-downs. I explained in the boy crisis exactly why that is, but it's basically, we're making sure that no one's a prima donna uh, because prima donnas won't, um, if a, we're, we're a firefighter and the fire is in a, in a room, uh, prima donna is not gonna come in and risk his or her his life to save us. And so we're always checking to be sure that somebody has a sense of humor um, and can laugh at themselves. And so we, we're, we're constantly exchanging wood covered put downs, guys are. Um, but um, the male chauvinists would say, well, women aren't gonna be able to handle that. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna be upset and they're gonna be withdrawing or they're gonna report you or they're gonna quit. Um, and so, you know, at that time there was nobody to report them to, but then we, then we, then we created HR, well, which is supposedly called human resources. It should be called HER because it's more about her um, uh, feelings. And she, so if you say, gee, you're really, a, a really, you look great in that, you know, new blue dress you have, um, that she could potentially feel that that was a, you know, a pass and, um, and reported to HR and HR, this would be a mark on the guy's background. They wouldn't be interviewing and talking to both of them, they would just, it would be pretty much um, assigned as a negative uh, phenomenon for men. Um, and so there were, there were, so the, so the, the 11 or 12 executive CEOs that I've spoken to recently have all said 11 or 12 out of 11 or 12, this is not split, a split thing. The male CEOs have said, I used to love mentoring women. Now I'm, I have a wife, I have children. Anything I, there's no, there's a chance that I will lose my job and be knocked out. If we're, if we're talking to each other behind closed doors, that's a problem. If the doors are open, uh, we can be excerpted. If we take, if we, uh, we could be quoted out of context. Um, if we go out for dinner, instead of doing it on office time, it could seem like we're dating. If um, she cries and is upset and I hold her hand for a moment and somebody takes a picture of that, I'm done. Uh, and so, uh, you know, or if she doesn't get as far as she was wanting to get and she blames me for not mentoring her properly, I could be done. And I, I wouldn't touch mentoring a woman now uh, for anything. Now, the, the data on mentoring uh, women is that 
even when women are above uh, other women at work, the man is more likely to be willing to mentor a woman and take the time out than a woman above a woman at work is to do so. And those women tend to go far and, and women have lost because so many people are so afraid of women playing victim or being a victim or experiencing something as a sexist offense that um, that men are just backing off, but men can't say this is the problem because if they said this is the problem, they would they would open themselves up to demotion um, because uh, people would feel that they're anti-woman, and so the guys feel caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and see this in inherent fairness on your part, your, your goal of truth and your genuine um, motivation for what you do had to, had to depart from feminists at some point, right? Because that's not how we describe them. So when you wrote, so, so out comes the myth of male power in 1993. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and you argue, I'll let you do the bulk of it, but I'll just say here real quickly that men are basically disadvantaged in other ways that we're overlooking. And this book was then challenged by feminists who argued that, well, since men obviously earn more money, they have all the power, end of conversation. Meanwhile, you write a whole book that basically refutes um, not only that argument, but every bogus, in my opinion, feminist claim that is still with us today, the entire framework within which modern women base their beliefs are totally upended, upended in this book, The Myth of Male Power. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I really just thought, as you said, I just thought everything through. And so, for example, I, and I also started some 300 men's groups and about 200 women's groups. And I just, and I started at the beginning, I was proselytizing to the men's groups and the men's groups were just sort of like, you know, they weren't saying a great deal. And, but I was also recording with their permission, their sessions. And when I went back over for the purpose of a book I was writing. And so, um, and when I went back over those sessions, I heard the men saying things that I wasn't listening to. Um, and so as I started listening, as opposed to lecturing, um, I started to really hear the pain that men had. So I would hear things like a man saying, you know, I'm, um, I, my, we just had, my wife and I are having a ch uh, children and it's our first child. And they, he'd be, a, he'd be a working man and my, his wife would be a working man. And he'd say, um, you know, I really, you know, everybody in the group would know uh, that he wanted to be a musician or another group, a writer, or in cases like myself, a writer um, and the, um, or an actor or some type of artistic profession, or one guy, I remember being a, an elementary school teacher and, and the, uh, and he, his, he realized that he wouldn't be able to support his family as responsibly if he was an elementary school teacher. So he had to become, he felt he had to become an assistant principal, then a principal, then a superintendent of schools. And he hated being an administrator. He loved teaching, um, but he gave up doing what he loved to do, uh, whether it was a musician, an artist, a writer, um, and, and realized that writer or artists usually meant starving artists and be responsible to his family. So he ended up earning more than his wife because his wife wanted to put more time in with the children. And even if um, she worked uh, full-time technically, she was working more like 35 hours a week and he was increasing his full-time work to about 45, 50 hours a week. Um, but he didn't, um, and so as a result of that, he was experiencing the father's catch-22, learning to love his family by being away from the love of his family. So here he was giving up what he loved to do 
to an exchange for doing what he felt he needed to do, which led to which meant earning more money and giving up fulfilling jobs. And then he was being accused by feminists as being more likely to be a superintendent of schools than females were. Therefore, he had male privilege or being more likely to earn more money than his wife was. Therefore, he had more male privilege. We feminists didn't stop and say, thank you, fathers, for when you have your children born, giving up the life that you wanted to do, that you love to do, so that you could help your children have a better life than you have, and your wife have a decent home and a decent neighborhood with a decent school system. Thank you, guys. We instead said, male privilege. I'm going to stop you there because I think you might have known, well, you probably don't remember, I don't know if we brought it up, but that's somewhat of my 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 husband's story and what he started out doing. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the reason, you're right, actually he wanted to be a poet. He stayed in school, he got his master's in English, and he had this whole other life in his 20s and finally realized he wasn't going to make enough. There were other reasons he left, actually. He got very dismayed by the whole thing. So I can't blame it solely on money. But he did recognize that he wouldn't be able to really have a family, at least not the way he wanted to. Yes. Um, and ended up having to switch gears. And I didn't come into his life until after he had made that move, which I've openly admitted more than once is a good thing because the reality is I always had planned to stay stay home and I would not have married somebody who could not have um, provided that for me for X amount of years. And fortunately, he agreed. Right. So that's yeah. the goal is to find somebody with whom you have the same value system and you want to go about it by doing the same thing. That's it's really more about finding that, not telling people how to do it, but just making sure that you've got someone who's on the same page with that. And I have written in the past a big thank you to him because that's you're absolutely right. There's no acknowledgement that, you know, I don't know that he's really fulfilled in what he does. You know, but then fortunately for him, he doesn't really get his fulfillment from there. (laughs) Thank God, you know, and because we are so family focused, we think of jobs more of um, icing on the cake rather than the cake. Mm -hmm. So for us, it works. But you're right. You're up against people who are elevating work. And as you were fighting against in this book, the the idea that power is the only way to um, that there's only one form of power. Right. That was one of the. Yes, things we yes. were trying to say that that's just one power. So explain that a little bit. Yes. So um, definitionally, I'm saying that power, real power, is being happy, um, and men have learned to define power as feeling obligated to earn money that someone else spends while they die sooner. And if I were to do a, a, a female empowerment workshop and say, uh, "Women, I'm going to teach you how to have power. I'm going to teach you how to feel obligated to earn money." that your other the family members will spend and you'll die sooner instead of living longer. Um, every woman in that audience would be intelligent enough to kick me out of that room within a minute as <laughs> having a pulse definition mm-hmm. of power. But men have bought that def- definition of power. And I'll, I'll be honest personally here. Here's one of the things that happened to me. Um, the uh, my, When I sort of a, appeared to have a gift for writing, um, my father came up to me and he said, Hey, Warren, uh, I just want you to be aware that only about one out of a hundred writers actually ever find a publisher. And if you can't find a publisher, you'll never find a wife. Um, and I started reading um, and saw that Zelda Fitzgerald, you know, loved F. Scott Fitzgerald, but she made it clear to him that there was going to be no marriage until he had a best-selling book. Uh, and for him, for his good sake, his first book was a bestseller um, and she didn't marry him. But the, the point there being that 
um, that my father was warning me uh, that if I, as I said, if I couldn't find a publisher, I couldn't find a wife. And if I, and, and he said, only about um, the average amount of money that a book makes for an author is $5,000. We know that. <laughs> Which is not exactly a living wage. No. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Thank God I was home all those years and I did that on the side. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> so you, you know, right? Oh, yeah. And so, this, so this was um, uh, so that that was um, very very interesting. And but I still went ahead and pursued writing anyway. So years later, um, I live I move out to uh, California, and my father comes out to visit me, and and with my mother. And the the, um, the the my father is talking about things for three days, but never asked me a single question about myself. So I asked him to go on a, a walk with me and uh, privately I said, you know, dad, we've been out here three days and you've never asked me a single question about myself. Long pause. Dad says, um, Warren, I wanna keep our relationship good. And I said, dad, keeping a relationship good does not mean not talking with a person about things that they love and want to do and wanna share with you. Long pause. He said, okay, you really want me to be honest? I said, yes, dad, even if it's something I don't wanna hear, I want it to be honest. And he said, well, I think you're ruining the lives of millions of people. And I go, whoa, um, dad, explain please. And he said, you're teaching people psychology. Psychology teaches people about to think about what they want to do. Being a man is not thinking about what you want to do. It's, it's being responsible, Think, seeing what you are, uh, uh, the responsibilities you've taken o, o, on and doing what you need to do, not what you want to do. You don't hear my, me or my father talking about men's rights or women's rights. We talk about our obligations and our responsibilities. Psychology, by getting you in touch with what you want to do, undermines and compromises and erodes that obligation to do what's best for your your family and for the next generation. And so you teach people to be focused on themselves. I want you to teach people, I would want you to teach people to focus on what the next generation will benefit from most. And I said, wow, dad, actually, that's very thoughtful. And, um, more thoughtful than you anticipated. Yes, definitely more thoughtful than I anticipated, particularly after he said I ruined the lives of millions of people. Yeah. Uh, and you know, my first thing was a joke, you know, dad, I don't affect the lives of millions of people. Um, but yeah. the, you know, <laughs> thank you for the thought. <laughs> thank you for the thought. Exactly right. And so um, the. But, wow, that's um, really interesting, Warren. That's that's very interesting. I how old would you have been then when that, that happened? Yes, let's see. I was um it was actually when I was I moved out to California in 1978, so about 1979. Now do you, is he still alive? No, he he um passed he lived to be 99 years old, but he did pass oh, away wow. in 1999. So did that how did that conversation affect your relationship thereafter? Well, it, oh, um, very positively, um, you know, because at, at least he was able to speak up and tell me his truth. And I was um, a little defensive at that moment, but um, very shortly after that, I became less defensive and um, and sort of acknowledged the value of what he was saying. And, um, and, and, you know, talk to him about the fact that I was, you know, making decent advances and so on. But when this, this created another problem, because 
when I saw that the, the board of now was saying to me, you know, Warren, whose side are you on here when you're talking about boys um, not, not doing as well when they don't have fathers and girls not doing as well when they don't have fathers? I realized very quickly uh, that, that, that if I continue to speak on behalf of things like men not having quite the power that they thought that men had, and that children needed their fathers and families actually were really good for children, um, I realized that if I started speaking like that, that it would lead to a significant reduction in my speaking engagements. And, um, and, it, did, didn't it? and, it, and it did. I went from 50, uh, 50, speaking, 50 plus speaking engagements per year at universities down to zero. Um, I went um, from many speaking engagements a year, five to 10, um, at, at uh, corporations down to two or three. Um, and so it was a real, so I, you know, uh, the cost of that, the cost of making the decision to sort of write things like the myth of male power has cost me about 10 to $12 million based on a conservative calculation that I did recently to my great dismay. Well, my goodness, I don't know what to say to that, except I'm so glad you did write it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I'm glad I did. I would, I would not, you know, as, as you know, from you know visiting my home, I'm not living in poverty and, um, no. And so, you know, we've, I've been able to invest a lot of, uh, one of the ironies, the great ironies is that um, I took a great deal of the money that I was making from the women's movement and I did invest it wisely. And that has helped support me. Plus uh, my wonderful wife is uh, also a very good earner. And so the two have allowed us to, to have a win-win situation. Yeah, that is a win-win. Amen to that. Okay. So just a couple of quick points on before we leave the myth of male power and get to the boy crisis. So a couple of things that I wrote down that I thought would be instructive for um, people who are listening. Um, I loved how on page 40, you said, this is basically a history lesson, that feminists compare marriage to slavery. Of course, we know that we talk about that here. Versus, oh, there's a whole nother way to look at marriage. And you present that there. And it's very similar to what um, Jordan Peterson has come out in the last couple of years and explained. And I know you've talked with him, and you have very similar mindsets in terms of what what history was really about when it came to men's and women's roles and um, why you you made some comment about how, if, if, if marriage is so awful for women, why do they gobble up all these romance novels that are all based on marriage and wanting to find a husband and all that? So I'll, I'll let you go with that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So uh, what, what feminists never acknowledge is that every generation had its war. And if and feminists start out from the place of, you know, uh, if I were to give gender studies 101 line, it is um, the world is dominated by a patriarchy in which men made the rules to benefit men at the expense of women. And so I say, no, the world was dominated by the need to survive. And in order to survive, both sexes had rigid roles that they that that the society assessed was best for both sexes and mostly best for the next generation to to grow up successfully. And so every so for example every generation had its war and so men men were trained to think of themselves as being heroes which is basically a social bribe to be willing to die risking their lives at war. 
now if um and so you know there would be pictures of uncle joe on the top of the um uh, credenza and um and uncle joe would be admired and we talk about how much he he died in the marines to save his country and so you know little joe uh, would be growing up thinking that all right if i you know if there's a war and uh, they were possibly going to be suffering from a nazi invasion in world war ii uh, maybe you know i could be, go out there and i could fight for my country and he had to be willing to, to be disposable. Now, in order to be disposable, which is basically the definition of masculinity uh, throughout all of history, it was to learn how to be willing to be disposable in that generation's war, or to risk your life in the hazardous jobs, as 90, 93% of deaths at hazard in jobs um, are uh, to men, uh, and men hold about 97, 98% of the hazardous jobs. Um, if if that, it, so the, the preparation of men to be disposable is part of masculinity, that's not exactly assigning to men the roles of privilege. And I some, and so I say in the myth of male power, you know, if you'd like to do a reversal of this, why don't we have the next thousand years have only women um, be, register for the draft and only women go to war and only women go into the into the in, into battle and die and women uh, and men will stay home and men will focus on how to love and be loved and women will can focus on how to kill and be killed um, and we can then call that female power. Um, is, is there any feminist that is willing to reverse roles in the next thousand years to have affirmative action to compensate for the male? disposability and have women be the disposable sex and men be the uh, pr protected sex um, and be the entitled sex, the sex entitled to pr uh, protection. And so this, of course, confronted every single thing that feminists were saying. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And you did it in, I mean, you just, just point by point by point by point. Um, you know, right down to the way that, that the real liberation of women wasn't, and I've written about this as well, was not feminism per se. Well, nothing feminism in my opinion at, at all. Um, I mean, maybe a small portion, but my argument there is that it would have happened anyway, because it's ultimately technology and the birth control, both of which were created prior to the women's liberation movement. Um, I mean, not all technology, but the birth control pill. And that did more for women in terms of, I shouldn't say for women, because there's probably people who are listening who may not be pro birth control. I'm simply pointing out that it was that that changed things more than any other screaming group of feminists down the street <laughs> could have ever have done. Yeah. Uh, now, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I want to give the feminist movement credit where I think it's due. And one of the things, and, and birth control and technology clearly have been the, the, the role disintegrators um, to the greatest degree. But there's also... Um, there is also value to people saying, you know, uh, women uh, to confronting the world that when you as a guidance counselor are guiding uh, women and you have a really bright woman in your class and you say, you know, yes, you can be a teacher, you can be a secretary, you could be a, uh, a, a wife that supports husbands. There, it, there is value to having role models of women being um in every type of position. Now, how we get them there and, and the framing of getting them there as men are keeping us down and we, women are, um, uh, are oppressed, 
that was a completely erroneous frame of making that transition. Right. But, have, but having positive role models, me saying to my daughters, um, you know, I want you to go out there and play team sports. And when they said, no, we don't want to do it, my, you know, my working with Liz to say, it, it, this is not an option. You m need to go out there and play team sports. There are things you learn from that uh, that that are important. That are important, and it's not okay just to focus on finding a good man who's making a lot of money. Uh, I want you to have the option of finding a good man who's making a lot of money, and I want you to have find the option, uh, you know, to to have the option of making a lot of money yourself if that's what you uh, wish to do, and to know the trade-offs if you don't wish to do that. And so, yeah, that. I don't. I don't disagree with anything that you said there, and of course, that's exactly how uh, I've raised my daughter. I, I think. I think probably I'm just a little bit less. I can't separate the way in the second part of what you said, the way in which the message ultimately had to get across versus the way it could have gotten across. I think that's really my beef, right? Because I, I've done it differently with my daughter, and and even with the you know I used to teach and I work with a lot of women. I. That is the argument. What you just said is what I make, yeah. but it doesn't yeah. need to be. There's a way to do it um, without that structure that you just described of uh, men are bad or toxic and women are oppressed. And here's how you I just can't get my head with it at all. I just think yeah. there's a whole nother way to teach this message. I totally, I totally agree with you. And, and I am I have to tell you, I am really hurt in my heart um, that a movement that I was really hoping was about liberation um, became framed as men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed. Uh, because I did put many years into truly believing that we were going to lead the world to uh, to have a non-dichotomous movement. And I also recognized that that you know, we grew out of a civil rights movement in which there was an oppressor group and, a, and an oppressed group, and then a lot of early feminists were Marxist in their orientation, and and Lenin in particular was you know very critical of the nuclear family and framed it as as males as the oppressors and women as oppressed by the nuclear family, and so there was a lot of negativity toward the nuclear family and marriage, and that's where so that hierarchy that hierarchy of oppressor versus oppressed. Uh, was a hierarchy that feminism, uh, early feminism, brought into, and I'm afraid that um, that 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 that's that, where we are today. That's where we are. Yeah, and the, you know, the sadness is that you know we. Um, one of the books I wrote, as you know, is a book called "Why Men Earn More and What Women Can Do About It," and the and the, the startling truth behind the pay gap. Pay gap, and I outlined there 25 things that women can do to earn more money if they wish to. Uh, and the and after I did the data analysis on it, I saw that it was it was not possible to say that women earn less money for the same work. Uh, they probably earn more money for the same work, same time, same commuting, same sacrifices, um, same giving up of weekends, same willingness to to um, to to give up commutes. Or, um, or, or or commute, um, same willingness to take jobs in places that are undesirable but are good opportunities for advancement. When when you took the 25 things that are almost never measured and you put them together, um, it is impossible to say that men earn more money than women for the same work. What is true is that dads, not that men earn more money than women, uh, in, fact, in fact, never married women who have never had children have earned more than men since the 70s and earn 17% more um, now. Uh, what is true is that 
dads earn more money than moms do because of what I mentioned before about when a man and woman become a dad and a mom, uh, the dads are far more likely to give up fulfilling jobs and fulfilling jobs pay less. The road to high pay is basically a toll road and men are willing to pay, pay those tolls when the children come for the same reason that my dad was talking to me about. Mm -hmm. um, and so and, and we, the feminist movement, I can no longer say I'm afraid we as feminists, but, I, but we as feminists in the old days and the feminist movement today, separate from me, has become so toxic that to this day, we are still unwilling to acknowledge that and, or say on any way, shape or form, any level of thank you men for anything. Not only, yeah, right, that's one of it, saying thank you, no question, and acknowledging that men and women are different. That's the other piece. Yes, yes. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. I had John Gray on a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you know that. I hadn't mentioned oh, that. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, He's yeah. You know, my co-author for The Boy Crisis. Yes, yes. so we're going to talk about that now, The Boy Crisis. And I, I don't think I'd, I might have mentioned that in the opening. I can't remember. But um, but yeah, so Warren and John did uh, did that book together that we're about to talk about. And he mentioned that, it's just forget it, he can't go on college campuses anymore. Because he can't say anything about, I mean, basically his whole life's work about the differences between women and men is no longer welcome. Exactly. And, you know, and, I, and, and as an example of that, when I was on the board of now, um, even though I didn't have a PhD, I had not written my first book at that point in time. Um, I was offered jobs at Columbia University and every, every place that I might have wanted to teach was reaching out to me um, rather than, um, and now, um, like John, I could not get a job at any major university with any um, normal reputation, um, you know, that's normally considered uh, a, a university of high reputation. And so that's, and, and that is deeply sad because universities of all places should not be protectors um, of information. They should not be um, um, deniers of the de desire for free speech. At universities, every perspective should be investigated, invited, and uh, and brought to um, for the students to hear. Today, uh, in the old days, 1968, for example, uh, it was liberals who were in favor of free speech. Mm -hmm. Today, it's much more likely to be conservatives that are in favor of free speech. And the nerve of liberals to call ourselves progressive Excuse me, progressive is a self-righteous term that suggests that anyone that disagrees with you is regressive. Now, this doesn't mean that 
that conservatives don't have their self-righteousness too. I mean, pa- calling yourself a patriot is um, is a way of suggesting that anyone that disagrees with you is not a patriot. Yeah, I would agree with that. We, we, we both need to learn, everyone needs to learn that, that the single biggest step we need to take forward in this culture today is, commu- is learning communication skills, to hear each other, to share what we heard in a way that allows the other person to say, that's exactly what I meant to say, thank you for not distorting me. Um, and then are asking, is there anything I missed about what you said? And is there anything else you'd like to add now that you know the environment is safe? That's the that's what every education process from first grade on should be co- uh, about at its core level. You know, since you brought that up, I'll skip, let, let's come back to the boy crisis really quick and just tell people about your couples communication workshops, because what you just said sounds an awful lot about what you, sounds an awful lot like, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, what you teach there. Yes, exactly. It's exactly what I teach there. And um, so the connection between that and the boy crisis is that I started to see that um, the boy crisis usually came as a result of there being divorces and divorces leading to a smaller amount of um, of involvement with fathers or no involvement with fathers. And that led to the boy crisis. It also led to a lot of problems for girls in about 50 different areas uh, that I that had discussed in the boy crisis. But I started to say, okay, let's go back and tra- solve the problem at the beginning. And the beginning is you know, all these divorces. Well, solving the po- problem of, I don't want to legislate people to have to stay together that hate each other. Um, so how about instead of legislation, there being communication? Okay, dig, dig deeper. I started digging deeper into communication issues and realized that almost that, that biologically, all the Achilles heel of almost all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism from a loved one without becoming defensive. And especially a loved one when we feel that the criticism is given badly. And usually almost any criticism given by a loved one is considered as given badly. And so the and so we end up making the environment unsafe for our partners sharing what's really bothering them because usually it turns into an escalation rather than feeling understood. And so I said, okay, and then I started researching that and realized, well, this was biologically natural. If you heard um, another kinship network or tribe or nation um, saying a lot of negative things about you, you had to sort of get up your defenses so that you weren't killed by you know, a, po- a possible enemy or alternatively kill them before you kill, uh, they kill you. And so that, so what was necessary for survival, which was defensiveness and, um, and being taking the offensive, uh, was uh, fundamentally not, it was dysfunctional for love. Um, and so I started to ask myself, is there a way of getting around this? And, and this and active listening was the best way of getting around it. However, the active listening was good for the person who was sharing their concern, but it often let the, their partner feel very criticized and not only criticized, um, but also uh, feeling that they had to repeat the criticism that their partner was giving them. Uh, so it took away their defenses. And then when they were defenseless, made them more vulnerable. And the data on active listening showed that nobody, uh, almost nobody ever did active listening um, when there wasn't a therapist present. So it was it was only wealthy people who could afford therapists um, who were able to uh, really do even active listening with each other. And so I started developing um, a method where there could be a conflict-free zone for 166 hours a week 
and two hours a week where um, the couple could um, sh um, share just one concern per week. But before they shared their concern, their partner would alter their biologically natural state of defensiveness and do a series of mindsets that put them into understanding how they would be able to, by creating a safe environment for their partner, create a safe environment for their partner to be able to share what was really on his or her mind, feel really heard, therefore feel really loved. Um, by their partner and therefore f feel more love for their partner. So this is, you know, the tip of the iceberg of something that was um, a very, it's, you know, it takes a full weekend to do it. But the good news was when the, the one of the very few good things about COVID is that it, you know, it canceled all my workshops and speaking engagements. And so I had the last uh, seven or eight months to focus on doing a couples communication course on Zoom. Um, and that will uh, I'll eventually be um, editing out and making it available for people um, at, um, at a very reasonable price. Oh. And, and then I'm also trying to do a 501c3 to be able to um, distribute um, the uh, couples Zoom course to all poorer communities in the country so that people don't have to be um, middle class or above to be able to afford um, this uh, process. That's that's amazing, Warren. That's wonderful. So I, I imagine it was a, a little harder to do it via Zoom, but then you found some other way of <laughs> making that a great thing instead of a bad thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, and it really actually, um, you know, there are so many opportunities on Zoom. I was able to have two couples actually do the workshop um, on Zoom with me. And so the, the person watching it can either just watch what they do in a workshop, which is, you know, me cr creating exercises for them to do and then uh, re rehearsing and working on the process that allows them to hear their partner's perspectives without being uh, defensive. But it also allowed two couples to go through it and you can watch the two couples go through it and see what mistakes they made wow. and what questions they had. So you have an option to do it in the quick and easy way or watching one couple do it or two couples do it with me. Um, and, and then you also have the, you know, the chance to go back and in a, in a real live workshop, you know, if you've missed something, you can't go back and, uh, and go back over it again without taking the workshop again. And this way you can go back over awesome. um, the, the Zoom uh, course. So I just thought of something else when you're explaining this. So I wasn't seeing the connection there. Now I do between w the boy crisis, which we need to get to now, um, uh, and and your workshop. So so you that that's just yet another reason, another way that you and I are like. So instead of focusing on policy, I'm not big on policy. I'm big on getting to what happens before policy, which is the relationships and the breakdown. So if you can get to that, you'll have less need for all this policy, right? Yes, and so that's that's yeah. I'm sorry, you go ahead. I was gonna say, so that's the connection for you is the boy crisis um, came from doing this, doing these, you've been, been doing these workshops for years, right? Yes, 30 and, years. Yeah. And you're like, well, if I can help people stay together, essentially, obviously, there are more boys that are going to stay with their dads, right? Absolutely. And the, you know, the core thing that I began to realize is much, much more than I did in years ago, uh, was that, um, you know, it, we talk about, many people talk about understanding that Black Lives Matter. Well, you, you really can't genuinely be in favor of saying that Black Lives Matter if you don't understand that you have to focus on inspiring African-American and Black men in general to become involved as dads. 
because where the the black community, the African-American community is suffering is in that 74% of families where the children have minimal or no father involvement. Um, and this, um, and so if you want, if you really care about African-America or black men, you need to care about father involvement. You need to inspire father involvement. When you have um, father involvement, you are much less likely to have mass shootings and therefore all the uh, security systems and uh, both psychologically and uh, physically that we have, you're much less likely to have crime and therefore the, uh, the enormous cost of prisons and the cost of the crime it's, the crimes itself, you're much less likely to have somebody join um, ISIS. Um, so to be very specific about this, so um, in the last, um, since, since the year 2000, uh, there have been five mass shootings uh, in schools, school shootings that have killed 10 or more people. Uh, every single one of them has come from a boy that did a a boy, not a girl, and b um, from a boy who um, whose killings whose killing he who had a lack who who is what I call in the boy crisis book dad deprived. Um, and then I started looking at prisoners. Uh, I ran for governor of California some years ago and went spoke to a lot of prison populations and found that over and over again those prisoners at about the 85, 90% level was what the prison administrators told me, uh, were dad deprived boys. Um, and then started looking at ISIS recruits and ISIS recruits um, were from the United States uh, were about at the 90% level dad deprived. But in that case, 90% um, of the ISIS recruits were male, but about 10% were female. And the females were also dad deprived females who were searching for a cause uh, that was bigger than themselves, that they hadn't been able by a, um, an intact family um, to have their, their, their talents uh, channeled effectively. And for men in particular with a high testosterone level, for young males, um, when testosterone is not channeled um, constructively, it is much more vulnerable to being channeled destructively. Amen. So that, so the dad deprived boys, correct me if I'm wrong, that's one of the three main causes of the boy crisis. So quickly sort of define what the boy crisis is for people. And then I think you talked about it having three main causes, one of which was dad deprived boys. And then there's two others. Yes. Uh, okay. The, um, the boy crisis is I started to see in, um, all 56 of the largest developed nations, um, boys were falling behind girls in every single academic subject, but especially in reading and writing that happened to be the two academic, biggest academic predictors of success or failure. Um, and so th then I started looking at the mental health. Uh, I saw that at the age of um, nine, um, boys and girls rarely commit suicide. And when they do, they commit about equally. But between the ages of 10 and 14, boys commit suicide twice as often as girls. Between the ages of 15 and 19, four times as often as girls. And between the ages of 20 and 25, um, males commit suicide about um, five times as often as females. And so we saw this, So we, but nobody was looking at what happened as boys learned to be boys both biologically and socially uh, that led to males feeling so much more 
on the outside strong, but on the inside so um, vulnerable that they were so much more likely to commit suicide? And these are questions that society isn't even asking. Uh, older men, for example, at the age of um, uh, 85 and older, they commit suicide 1,750% more frequently than their female counterparts. No one's, you know, if, if that figure was reversed, everybody in the society would know about that. I then started looking at things like physical health and seeing that boys were, especially dad-deprived boys, were far more likely to be obese. The suicide, by the way, um, was the single biggest predictor of suicide was dad deprivation. Um, and so the obesity was very heavily triggered by dad deprivation. I then began looking more technically, seeing uh, telomeres. Telomeres, which is um, the, in every cell has telomeres, and the, um, the, the, the telomeres, longer telomeres are the single biggest predictor of life expectancy, uh, especially by the age of nine and a half. And children who have dad involvement are far more likely to have longer telomeres, even at the age of um, nine and a half. But the males who are lacking father involvement um, are their telomeres are yet again 40% shorter than girls. Um, I then started looking at um, brain development and seeing that, you know, we said that, well, maybe, you know, fathers are just not naturally inclined toward children. Well, that's sort of true and sort of not true. Um, in males' brains, uh, there is a whole dormant um, um, set of neurons. Uh, when males' uh, fathers get involved with their children uh, pre-birth and birth, um, the, the, those, uh, their, um, uh, their neurons connect in such a way that their brain develops a whole d uh, equivalent of a, a, a dad instinct uh, of protection and, and oxytocin and other uh, hormones uh, that, that, that allow the dad to be very focused on, the ben on, what, uh, uh, on nurturing the child, but in a different way then the female hormones um, allow for that uh, when, a, when a child is born. And so um, understanding what is, what is, you know, how much potential there is for nurturance and, and connection, but also understanding, as I talk about in the Boy Crisis book, that there are nine s significantly different ways that, that I would label dad-style parenting versus mom-style parenting that is so important for um, as a result of biological differences, dads and mamas parent very differently, but the children who do best are ones that have checks and balance parenting, the ones that have um, a tension, a proper tension between dad's, dad's method of parenting and mom's method of parenting. So mom might say, no, sweetie, it's too, you're too young to climb that tree. And dad will say, well, you know, you can go ahead and climb that tree, just be careful. And mm -hmm. dad and mom may have an argument about, you know, what's, what's right and what's not right. Uh, but as a result of the, uh, that discussion, if it doesn't become an argument that's destructive, uh, the child gets to climb the tree, but within a certain amount of limits, and maybe with dad under the tree in case the child falls out and doesn't um, get, get a concussion. And so mom and dad work out a compromise where the children get the best of both worlds. And the best of both worlds is not what dads usually think, but when dads do their homework, they find out that climbing that tree actually increases the child's psychomotor functioning, increases the child's IQ. Dads rarely say to moms, you know, I want that child to climb the tree because it will increase a lot of biological functions that are positive for our children um, by learning to do things that have risks 
but yet a, a, a safety net of protection. The same type of thing comes with roughhousing. Uh, moms will, you know, dads will tend to roughhouse much more likely than moms. And I've never heard a dad say to a mom, you know, um, sweetie, I want to roughhouse with the children because um, more the more roughhousing I do up to a point, um, the more the children are likely to develop empathy, the more they're likely to develop social skills, the more they're likely to develop postponed gratification. Well, I've never heard of a dad that even knows that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I'm, so one of the reasons I focus on that a fair amount in the boy crisis book is to say, you know, dads can't be blamed for not saying uh, what they don't know and what nobody explains. And moms can't be explained, uh, blamed either, because moms can't hear what dads don't say. And so we need to understand how our biological differences create different parenting styles, and that the children who do best are the ones that have a balance between both sexes' parenting styles. Uh, But that also means that dad going away and being away from the family and just earning money um, is not the, uh, it does not lead to the very best children. Um, but that after you earn about $60,000, $70,000 a year, depending on where you live, um, dad's time means more important, is more important than dad's time. I'm, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I um, you know, I think that I'm, I'm anti-workaholic no matter what sex you are. You know, there's Absolutely. a fallout from that. It's a choice that you make, whether you're a dad or a mom, that, you know, it's not so much... It, it's just the reality. It's just the reality of the trade-offs, right? If this is what you choose to do, you're going to be less effective at home and there are going to be problems at home. The more you're at work, the more you're at the office, the more problems you're going to have at home and sort of, you know, it's just a trade-off. That's it. And and, yeah. And Um, it's a trade-off plus, meaning that almost no person understands, especially men do not tend to, to tend to not understand how the qualities that it takes to be successful at work are in intention with the qualities it takes to be successful in love. Um, and so Lord, did, for, you us, did you steal that from me? Do you know that's my tagline? <laughs> I did not. I seriously, as you know, I wrote about the myth of male power, but. Um, oh, no. Oh, my you, gosh. No, that's, I mean, over and over. And that's, that's sort of the message of my coaching and trying to explain that all those skills that I, of course, it's, specified to women in particular, but you're certainly right. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a woman or man. But for me, when I'm talking to women, I'm having to get them to understand that everything that they've been taught their whole lives may work in that domain. But that's why you're struggling in love because it doesn't work over there. Exactly. And so I'm so so glad we both are both. (laughs) If if we we were um, more modest, we would not say great minds think alike, but what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) We really do. Uh, We really do think alike, Warren. That's uh, really great. And and so just if someone's listening to this, and especially if a man's listening to this, let me just share an example of this. Um, So you're a CEO, let's say, uh, or president of a company, high level, and say you're at Boeing and somebody is an engineer and is trying to convince you that their engine at their company is the one that Boeing should buy. And so you're thinking, okay, you know, how does this, 
mesh with who else might be sell, selling me an engine from somebody uh, um, from from another company? How does this mesh with my um, my Chinese market with my uh, European market? Um, and you start asking, you start peppering uh, the sales executive with all those questions um, as maybe as they're talking or whatever. Um, so you're while they're talking, you are also self listening. You're listening to yourself have doubts and and you're and you're interrupting as often as is reasonably polite and um, to, to do so. So that helps you be a really good CEO. But you take that same skill set back home and your wife or your children are, are, are talking to you about um, their day at school or their day at work, uh, at work um, or at home. And you're um, you're constantly thinking to yourself while they're talking, um, you know, well, what about this? And why didn't you do this? And here's a better solution and, um, and, and so on. And they feel unheard. And after a while, they give up talking to you. Or the, your wife starts talking to her women friends at, um, instead of you, or that your children start talking to their friends rather than you, because uh, what's the use of talking to you? You always have something else to suggest to them, uh, some other way of interrupting them, something that they did wrong. It's not an inspiring environment to open up your heart uh, to someone. And so um, understanding those, those tensions between what it takes to be successful at work and home can be mastered if you're working 35, 40 hours a week. But if you are at the CEO level and you're working 80 to 90 hours a week, uh, as many CEOs do, that the, the, your whole brain becomes adaptive to a way of listening and being that leads to you being successful that does not allow you to easily adapt that to a different way of being at home. I can't, this is so interesting that this has come up. I don't think I've ever talked about this with you, but I literally just had a session this morning with a wife and they, he and she and her husband, same exact story. I can barely get them to, or her, because I work primarily with the women, to implement these skills until the schedule that they've created, it gets figured out because you're right. They're just, they're in such work mode that they're bringing this. Well, in addition to what you're talking about, they're also bringing exhaustion and, you know, not eating on schedule and just, just a lot of physical difficulties to the table. But um, you, I think that just happened with her husband this morning where he, he's just coming in and, and sort of continuing his work mindset with correcting her, you know, and, and it does go both ways. Um I do, like I said, work primarily with women because I do find in my experience that it's women who struggle more with the criticizing and the controlling than the men do, by and large. I think that the the kind of people you're talking about who work 60, 70, 80 hours, they definitely fall into that category. But honestly, they're not even the average husband today because we know that men are falling behind women in terms of um, um earnings right yeah, so yeah. yeah so a lot of the people that i work with their 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 husbands are not in that category and mm -hmm. so it it turns out that they are in that category the women and they're the ones mm -hmm. who can't turn it off yes absolutely absolutely yeah. and and women do have as a rule a, a harder time in the turning off process you know the, the brain structure is as we you know we all know uh, is much more interconnected the left and right hemispheres of the brain um, are much more interconnected for women and so it's harder as a rule for women to compartmentalize mm -hmm. uh, when, when I my, my wife is a very hard worker and she when I first met her uh, uh, after a while 
um, we, um, she was talking about her work as we were in bed and she sort of just was tired and she fell asleep. And in the morning she woke up and finished the sentence that she that did not happen <laughs> that, that did not serious, happen. seriously did happen not a single ounce of exaggeration oh my god i've never <laughs> I mean, literally, literally finished the sentence that she fell asleep in the middle of the first thing in the morning and you know it's, it's sort of like the ultimate example example of that oh my goodness uh, and it's um and it's and so but you, you said something very important a minute ago about complaining. So there, there are four things that I call life's, uh, that I call love's biggest depleters. One of those is complaining. Second, uh, second, oh, first one is criticizing. Second is complaining, what I call the four C's. Mm -hmm. uh, the third thing is controlling. And the fourth um, thing is complacency. Um, and uh, women are oriented toward um, criticizing their husbands more frequently than than men in their protective instinct tend to be um, of of the female. Um, they are more likely to complain, um, and but oftentimes they perceive that complaint not about being about their husband, but yeah. they may go to the restaurant their husband um, chose or uh, and criticize the food at the restaurant without realizing that it might come across to the husband as being criticizing the choice of that restaurant. Um, the third is complacency. Both sexes are um, guilty of, of that, um, of, of taking the other one for granted. And the, uh, and the other one is controlling. And many people say, well, I'm not controlling. But if you're complaining and criticizing a great deal, uh, then the person hearing the complaints about their behavior or the criticisms about their behavior feels controlled by you as a condition for um, your, your stopping the criticism. And so it's really important to sort of understand and be uh, uh, able to talk about how you feel when you feel criticized and, and also to understand the difference between um, the perception of criticism on the part of the criticizer versus the person being criticized. The person criticizing almost never sees himself or herself as criticizing. They see themselves as making a suggestion for the improvement of the relationship. The person who is on the other end who hears any suggestion for change in attitude or behavior experiences it as being criticized. And this difference is just one example of how important it is for the there to be a time each week where you communicate with your partner about what what is happening to you on a feeling level um, that um, that may or may not be at all in accord with the perception of the person in this case giving the criticism. Well, I'm really interested in that um, that thing you're creating then that can be on then Zoom. So is that on your? Will that be on your website when? It will definitely be yes. That will be on the uh, well. It'll be I'll I'll be um, selling it um, to people who are able to afford it, and then um, and then creating a distribution system um, um, uh, to poorer communities around the country for those that can't afford it. That's that's really wonderful. That's really great, Warren. Okay, so you're, let's tell everybody what your website is. I think it's your name, just your uh, name. Yes, I couldn't remember anything more complicated. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's WarrenFerrell.com. Let's spell it. Let's go spell it. Uh, Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, and Farrell is, is not like Will Farrell. I'm not that funny. Uh, it's F-A-R-R-E-L-L. -L. So Warren and F-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. -L great. Two R's, two L's. Awesome. This yes, is really great, Warren. 
This has been great talking to you. Really, always such a pleasure. So chock full of information. Thank you. But may I say something um, is that if you're getting the Boy Crisis book, I've been getting as much positive feedback about the audible version as the um, as I have um, the the text version. So if it's you know, if you're a person who's um, it's easier to listen to something um, than to read it, then that I think is. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize how popular until recently audiobooks are. Warren, have you found the same? I mean, it's almost equal, if not more. Than- I'm finding I'm selling about an equal yeah. number, but and and as, as importantly. Um, people are saying, I just love, you know, hearing you when, when it's you reading it, Warren, I hear what you emphasize, what, you know, what your tone is. I, I don't, I don't feel, you know, as threatened, um, I, you know, that type of thing. And J- John Gray read the five chapters that are, uh, on ADHD oh, wow. prevention. Um, and so I really want, I, you know, the publisher was willing to, um, you know, do the uh, professional hire. And I said, no, um, my experience has been that people really, uh, like to, hear the author's sincerity and, and caring. Well, you were, you're absolutely right. Cause I haven't done it that way. I've only had someone read it and I've had many people say, okay, Suzanne, you got, this is not going to be okay. You got to read the next one. I, <laughs> so, I, 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 I agree with you, especially you. I mean, there's some people that have no soul, uh, but you have a lot of soul. And so I think it's um, very, very, um, uh, very okay. beneficial. Thank you, Warren. That's a nice thing to say. This has been great. Awesome. Can't wait to um, to, to put it out there. And um, any last words you, you want to say before we sign off? No, um, just um, that if you read The Boy Crisis or The Myth of Male Power and you really feel in love with it, do not just shove it down your partner's throat. Um, discover portions of it that your partner agrees with already. Share those portions with it and let your partner speak his or her experience without trying to persuade them that they're wrong and you're right. That's awesome advice. I love that. I've had a lot of people, I've had men particularly who will email me and say, how do I get my wife to read your book? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You don't, it doesn't work quite like that. (laughs) I guess you can try and be strategic, but um, Yeah. yeah, great advice. All right, Warren, this has been great. So nice seeing you. It's very nice um, seeing you before we did the audio part and um, and and talking with you again. Let's keep in t- let's continue to keep in touch. Definitely. Thanks, Warren. Talk to you soon. Yes. Bye. And now for the email of the day. This is from Susan. She writes, "Hi, Suzanne. I just have to say I love your podcast, and I just finished reading the Alpha Females Guide, which really spoke to me. You have opened my eyes and made me realize a lot of my marital problems are stemming from my lack of." my lack of trust and need to control my husband. I'm committed to changing, but I have a question. How can I sit back and let my husband lead in good faith, knowing he is often oblivious and careless? He's a a successful lawyer, so his carelessness isn't a problem at work, but he loses things often, often, occasionally forgets to close the door, and once on a road trip drove us four hours in the wrong direction. Uh, He is kind, talented, and very intelligent, but I'm struggling with showing him the proper amount of respect because his level of carelessness drives me crazy. Okay, here's the thing. Two things. One, you'd be amazed what a man or even just a person can live up to, man or woman, when he or she is inspired. And this is especially true of men, because they depend so much on the support of their wives. And when you trust him to handle things, this emboldens him to be trustworthy. So I think what happens a lot of time with women is they they move with the feeling that they're having rather than using a specific behavior or action that then precipitates 
the feeling. So in other words, in fact, William James, the psychologist, says that action seems to follow feeling. Yeah, action seems to follow feeling, but really action and feeling go together. And by regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirectly regulate that feeling, which is not. So in other words, try doing the opposite of your instinct and assume that your husband is trustworthy, or in this case, not careless, and let him know that you think that. It's like it's almost like you're you know, feel like you're pretending, which isn't the worst thing in the world. You're just basically thinking the best and assuming the best. And that emboldens him, even if it takes some time, if you're consistently doing this over time, it's going to make him empowered to rise to your level of respect, if that makes sense. So respect isn't something that you, um, you have, you don't have to feel it every time you give it. I guess that's a better, really good way of putting it. You don't have to feel it to give it. You have to feel it in that moment, I should say. Hopefully you respect your husband in general. But in that moment, you don't have to feel it to give it. Just give it consistently, and you're much more likely to get a better result than if you're constantly assuming he's going to fail. I hope that I hope that helps and makes sense. And that ends this hour of The Suzanne Banker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk to author and psychoanalyst Erica Komisar about the emotionally unavailable mother. Finally, don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in The Suzanne Benker Show in the Facebook search bar and you'll find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. 